0: Hey everyone, welcome back to the Chain Reaction Podcast, formerly known as the 51% Crypto Research Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Shaughnessy. This is the official podcast of Delphi Digital, an independent research boutique providing institutional grade analysis on the digital asset market. Today I'm thrilled to have on Nathaniel Whitmark, a friend known famously for Long Read Sunday, his Sunday curation of the top long form Twitter threads, but he also does strategy and communications for projects. Nathaniel is, in my opinion, not only the best storyteller in the space, but it's the best ability at synthesizing down the intent and goal of projects into digestible and understandable words. If someone was explaining rocket science, I'd want it to be Nathaniel. In a space where sentiment is king, this is a very relevant podcast episode and one of my favorites. With that, here's my conversation with Nathaniel. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Today I'm thrilled to have on a friend that I gained from Twitter, and now he's a close buddy, Nathaniel Whitmore. How's it going, guys? Uh, good. How's it going? I, I love it uh, Twitter. Twitter IRL, man. Twitter IRL. I know. I can't believe how many friends I make on Twitter that turn into real life friends.
1: Yeah, I. Would, this is a. Uh, we could probably spend the entire podcast, uh, if if anyone ever let me, on the convergence of. Real worlds and digital worlds, but uh, but yeah, I agree. I agree. My my entire kind of professional relationship with crypto is largely um, through the through digital, you know, which is cool. Yeah,
0: it's crazy. I was at a meetup the other day, and there's like these five kids from or five guys from a Telegram chat, I'm, in and I'm like, hey, Tom, and I'm like, how do I know you guys? Yeah. <laughs> well, totally. thing, It's a pleasure to have you on. We want to focus this podcast on what you're the best at, and that is on crypto narratives.
1: Awesome, yeah, it's uh, it's it's kind of a, a defining topic for me, for sure.
0: Yeah, agreed. So let's start, I guess, at part one and the stakes. So, like, what is the breakdown or the framework of narratives for early adopters? Like, how do you think about this for project?
1: Okay, well, let's actually take a step back and just talk for a second about what we mean when we're saying narratives and and kind of a just how, how to think about them. So, when when I use the term narrative, what I mean is um, it, it, it's a it's a way to think about not necessarily what things are happening, but how people are interpreting them and what stories people are telling about why those things are happening, what it means that they're happening and what's likely to happen next. Right. So narratives are kind of the the story layer that sits on top of, uh, real world events that helps people make sense of them and helps people draw conclusions from them. Right. And so my, you know, I've always been in, interested in narratives, uh, kind of across contexts, right. So, uh, you know, my formative years were spent, um, totally focused on, sort uh, social change and social impact. And and when I was involved with that, or kind of when I was most involved in that, I guess I would say there was an interesting shift in narratives from business being the enemy to business being an ally, uh, and business strategies being really useful. This is when, you know, the, the concept of social, uh, entrepreneurship was having a real renaissance and emergence in the, the aughts and early teens, I guess. Um, so so you know so narratives have always uh, been interesting to me um and when i was in college actually i studied uh at my my senior history thesis was about um how americans understood uh, this civil war that happened in Nigeria in the early 70s, which was the first first time that we got involved in a big humanitarian project. And the whole thing was almost entirely about narratives and what stories we were telling ourselves about why what was happening was happening and what our obligation was to it and, and so on. So, um, so I've kind of always been interested in narratives as this story layer, this explanation layer, this making uh, making meaning layer uh, on top of, of of what was happening. And you could look at that in across a, a lot of different contexts. So um, in, in Twitter, I think narratives matter, or sorry, in in crypto, narratives matter for a couple reasons. Um, The first, I think, and, and arguably most elemental uh, is that money is in a lot of ways, a shared belief system, right? It's a, it's a system that relies upon narratives for, um, people to agree that things have value and that the value is, is kind of same and that you can understand it and you can, uh, engage with it as such. So I, I think money as a, as a system is just, is very narrative driven already, um, Uh, historically speaking. So you kind of have that piece of things, but then you also have the, the piece, which is just that this is, uh, an arena of, um, uh, emerging. It's an emerging technology space where the conclusions are far from determined and in which, um, it is uh, it, it's very hard to know what's going to happen next. And so in that context, uh, in the absence of evidence, or, or I guess we could say before there is uh, good evidence of, of, of what happens, there's real fact, there's real information to base things on. All you have is uh, interpretation and, and kind of narrative explorations of what's happened so far and what it means and what's likely to happen next. So I think there is a, a huge battle for, um, for kind of uh, the overarching narrative of crypto for specific sub-narratives in crypto. Um, and so, I mean, you know, we can get into everything from, again, like on that that highest level, like what is the purpose of crypto? Why are we all here? What are the stakes? Are the stakes money? Are they a world computer? Are they something different? How do those things live together? Are they about, uh, you know, uh, the freedom from uh, from tyranny of, of fiat regimes around the world who debase currency? Is it about uh, tier freedom from the tyranny of, of big web platforms? like there's, there's a huge still um tbd kind of uh question around what the overarching narratives of of the crypto space are as a whole but then within that you also have a huge you have competition uh in kind of sub areas of narratives right like so around governance is governance something that is to be valued is it something that's an attack uh surface to be minimized you know these you can and you can apply that across basically any any part of the conversation that we have uh, around things um or around around sort of subparts of crypto. So, you know, I think where we are right now is, you know, we're still pre um pre-usage in some areas, pre-adoption in other areas, even in areas where there is adoption and usage it's still largely concentrated on a set of early adopters. And so uh so it's it's really a battle of narratives, I I think in a, in a big way.
0: That's that was an insane intro. I I resonate with a lot of what you're saying and it kinda of reminds me of Sapiens when uh, I read that and it found out that money's just a shared belief. I had to read that twice. It just didn't click at first. But I guess going to your your first point on on shared beliefs driving narratives and kind of the value of projects, you know, where do you draw the line between following a thought leader who's telling a story and and following like a Twitter group that's sharing a story about a project? Like how do you think about the various I guess, storytellers in the space and and how do you follow them? Uh, Well, that's an interesting question. So a couple things. One is I think you should, uh, you know, we should always
1: be trying to kill our idols to some extent. And so I think that no one should be followed too much. I think, uh, you know, everyone is still... Um, figuring things out. And, uh, I find that it's super important to kind of surround yourself with a variety of perspectives. And, you know, to me, part of why I spend so much time thinking about narratives and trying to explore narratives is that once you recognize that market narratives are marketing. They are shared by people who have some interest in their narrative or their version of the narrative being correct, whether that's a financial stake or whether that is um, just sort of being seen as smart or thoughtful or a thought leader or whatever it is. The point of this is not to, um, the point of recognizing that market narratives are marketing is not to diminish their relevance. It's to kind of take, turn the volume down, I guess, on how much they influence us. Um, so that, that's kind of a a starting framework for me. So then within that, I mean, I think that there, there's never been a better time to be able to kind of, uh, track and understand the flow of narratives and i think that largely has to do with um i mean more than anything else twitter but also just what twitter represents which is this incredible uh shared interpretation layer that sits on top of the news right so twitter is where you know news uh, and social media more broadly is where news is shared but it is not the same thing as, as as you know the the role that journalism plays or reportage plays right which is to capture a set of events uh and and play it back to you the the purpose of that social media layer is to give the the kind of interpretation on top of it and um and i think that the the challenge of that is that it becomes there becomes a real inseparability between the information and the interpretation. And I think that can be really dangerous. I think that's a, a, a root cause for a lot of the challenges that we're facing right now, kind of on a larger societal level. Um, however, if you can piece those things out what you have access to is this unbelievable it's like the entire world got invited to the cable news show and you got to pick the guests that you think are are most interesting or right on right or or the kind of collective meritocracy, or the collective group gets to be a meritocracy of of whose voice rises um and i think that that's really interesting i think that there's a you know so in crypto for me it's all about figuring out who are who's sharing the most interesting perspectives and then i guess the kind of the layer deeper is what are the what are the narratives that they're attuned to where did they come from what's their bent um you know again everyone has a a specific set of biases that they're coming from and it's, it's important to understand that um not only to to kind of not in a way to try to cut down or um or be less interested in what they're saying, but just in terms of, of, of understanding better their perspective. So, you know, again, kind of, I guess, summarizing, um, it's really a lot about finding the right people and then spending enough time with their perspective to have kind of that, that context as
0: you're, as you're watching them speak, as you're watching them interpret. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. And Nathaniel, I guess one of the interesting parts that plays into what you're just talking about now is that I just wrote a report on Interoperability with Polkadot and Cosmos and Ethereum, and it was a it was a technical report. But when I first started, I thought, "Oh, Polkadot's just building bridges, like uh, you know that's what what all their marketing materials on." And then I dug into it, and I'm like, "Wow, this company's really trying to replace Ethereum and Tezos and EOS, and that's all hidden behind a lot of this marketing materials." And that's kind of like the narrative I found. But it took me, you know, weeks to figure that out, or days, but. You know, how do you deal with like this echo chamber of Twitter that we have? Like, how do we break out of that and get the real stories out or even just attract the people that aren't on Twitter to the real stories? Because I don't think everybody, you know, I'm doing research, but not everybody has the time to do that um, and find out these real narratives, you know? Yeah. So so a couple of things.
1: I think uh, one um, Certainly, keeping in mind that Twitter, uh, you know, does not represent all of reality and all of the narrative perspectives is important. Um, and, and you know, in the same way that that nor do marketing materials. But um, I think uh, I, I actually think that polka dot is a really interesting example right now. Um, so let, let's talk about this for se- for a second. So a couple things. So uh, I, I read your report. I thought it was great. Um, I love all of your reports. Actually, it's it's especially it's especially valuable as someone who lives in the narrative realm to be able to then cross-reference that with, um, with those deep dives. Right. I I think for me, the, the point of highlighting narratives is not to, uh, to kind of have a call them the exclusive factors and anything or, or explanatory of everything. It's to understand them as a layer of information that's essential for, for getting the whole picture. Right. Um, so I really appreciate, uh, real research. Um, so kudos to you, but so, you know, I, I think, um, there's, there's a couple of things around Polkadot. So one is I, I try really hard not to assume intent. So, you know, you pointed out that the, um, that, that Polkadot seems to be competing actually with Ethereum more than just trying to build bridges to it. And that that runs counter to all of kind of what, uh, what they've put forth, uh, from a, from a communications perspective. Um, for me, uh, I think, you can you can simultaneously say that hey you know the implications of the actions that are that you're taking and the way that you're building are to bring you, are likely to bring you in competition. It is, there's an inevitable collision course with Ethereum, you know, with this, with this other protocol. Uh and and not assume that those marketing materials are meant to somehow disguise that, right? Like one of the things that I think having been around, you know, young projects and startups for, you know, a long time now, is um, you often <sighs> You don't necessarily own your own narrative totally as, as a company. And, and what I mean by that is not that like the market comments on you and they kind of drive understanding, although that's true. It's that you don't necessarily understand all the implications of what you're building when you start. And in fact, I would argue that a lot of the best companies, if you look at the, um, you know, the last 10 years of web two, the last 15 years of web two. uh, started in one area and then we're just were nimble enough to realize that the implications of what they built were bigger than what they thought right bourbon turning into Instagram is a great example Facebook breaking out of college is a great example you know these guys didn't necessarily set out to have a master plan I mean sometimes people do you know different types of companies are different but i yeah, the the point as it relates to polka dot is that they could genuinely have set out or or currently even believe that they are focused on building kind of this bridge layer between things and then the implications of where the market is and based on how other projects are developing or not developing is that they actually find themselves in competition with these uh with these things and then the only question is what they do so so i think that it's it's again one of the things that i think trips us up sometimes is that when the narrative doesn't um when kind of a company's narrative doesn't match exactly what the implications of that company seem to be we assume malintent and i don't necessarily think that's the case. So that's part one that I think is interesting about using the, the polka dot case. Um part two is that actually in this case uh I don't know if you've kind of been watching but I feel like over the last 2 weeks especially since Ericon in um in Berlin a couple weeks ago uh social media and the ethereum community has actually been surfacing that the implications of polka dot are not just to be a bridge but to compete, right? Uh you saw um you saw Aragon announce that they're experimenting with, with building with substrate uh, at, at Aragon. Um, and they didn't say they're committing. They didn't say they're switching to your Ethereum, but um, Lane Rettig, the, the Ethereum core developer highlighted it right away. And it's like, holy shit, there's a lot of people here talking about Polkadot and building on Polkadot. And maybe Polkadot's actually competitive with Ethereum. Uh, Eric O'Connor has been, uh, you know, tweeting about this. He actually wrote the other day that it's, he thought it was, um, you know, a a, a huge competitor. So, so I think the interesting thing there is that in this case, uh, you know, crypto Twitter or whatever, Ethereum Twitter specifically, is actually doing some of that work to surface that the um, the narrative being shared in those marketing materials or just the, the conventional wisdom or the, the historic conventional wisdom or understanding of that project may not be actually what, uh, what, it, what it's going to, the force that it's going to be in the market. So I, th- I think Polkadot's a really interesting example right now and how the Ethereum community is kind of trying to figure out where they are. And it'll be really interesting to see what, uh what what polka dot does, you know, um and and how
0: they not only how they respond to that, but just where where they decide they want to be uh overall. Yeah, that's that's a lot of great information. And you know, I don't have an issue with competition. I want these platforms to compete because I want developers to, you know, feet to the flame, figure out what works and, and attack it. But you know, the other thing about polka dot that I'm wondering about from your end is they're currently, I think there's news around that they're raising, you know, selling another stake percentage of their tokens, five up to 20%, something like that, at a billion dollar valuation. Do you think that there's a disconnect between what they're potentially telling their investors on this bridge theory and then what crypto Twitter realizes is really a platform to build applications on?
1: Well, I wouldn't be surprised if part of why people are taking notice of, uh, of them has to do with the, the size of that raise and the valuation that they're, that that's being reported, um, is, uh, it certainly raises eyebrows from one narrative to the other. Right. And it may be that that's part of why people kind of took another look and were like, wait a second, what are they really trying to be? If we're, if we're talking about a, you know, a, a billion dollar plus valuation. Um, so, you know, there, there's that side of it. Uh, and, and I don't know, I mean, I have no idea. I, I haven't, I haven't seen, I haven't seen people specifically connect the dots between those two things, but it's, um, it's not, uh, it wouldn't surprise me if, if that was part of why it was kind of increasing in the conversation. Um,
0: that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Emmanuel, I, question on that. I mean, sure. th- one of my issues with crypto Twitter is that there's a lot of handholding between projects. And, you know, coming from a finance background, I'm always looking for competition and who's going to win and who's going to evolve the fastest. And I've kind of been circulating around this hashtag that the smart contract war is coming because I want these developers and everybody to realize that, you know, hey, you guys are in competition with each other, whether you like it or not. But I don't feel like that narrative or story is really getting across to people. What do you, what do you think about that?
1: I think that there's uh so I, I think it's an interesting observation that, that, um, is important to think through. So one, I I don't know that I think that the Ethereum community would agree that it's not combative. If you look at how kind of adversarial uh, Bitcoin Twitter is um, relative to them, and I think that I, we can talk, and, and if you want to, we can uh, extensively about how kind of what i think about bitcoin twitter's posture relative to other projects and and why it is what it is and how it's kind of a i think an adaptive economic strategy in some ways um but i i think that in a lot of ways actually like if you look at so i guess two things one is the uh, part of what has been a historic strength of the Ethereum community is positioning themselves as an alternative for people who want to self-select away from that sort of adversarial type community, um, and and being a, a a different type of space to engage with, right? Like that is actually a net value for a lot of the folks who found themselves in that Ethereum community. So I think in that way, actually, although it appears non-adversarial, in some ways they're taking advantage of it just they're, they're positioning themselves at the opposite end of a, of a particular spectrum in order to attract people who find themselves more, um, connected to that way of being that style of talking. Right. So, so I think that it is a a competitive, um, differentiator in some ways, uh, at least in terms of helping people self-select, which community kind of feels most resonant with them. Now then with, The context, I think, though, that you're more talking about is the, um, the smart contract battle between kind of all of these platforms that are would-be Ethereum killers and, uh, and, and what that looks like, um. I think that you're starting to see the emergence of that. I think basically like, look, like it, you know, until EOS went live last, uh, last fall or whatever, whenever it was, I guess like uh, August or September, um, it's really all just theoretical, right? Like all these projects had raised a bunch of money, but they hadn't, they hadn't started to do anything right they weren't on main nets they're just kind of for the future now the future is here uh these things are live they're in production they're competing they're doing different types of deals they have um you know different types of use cases that are emerging and so all of a sudden just they they actually exist and so uh so you you have to you have to assume that there's going to be um There's going to be more more kind of uh, competition for uh, community devotion and interest. Um, And I think you're starting to see that. I think actually, like even within the Ethereum community, I think that there is a um, there is a set of people who are much more vocal. Uh, a mean from uh Spank chain comes to mind about why and how ethereum needs to be more um you know kind of uh, aggressive and defensive all at once and what that means and and how to think about it and uh a, a, you know i mean just going so far as to actually commission and then release a report on the state of ethereum uh, 2.0 that was um, a real critical look at things are that wasn't coming from the outside but from the inside as a way to kind of try to to sh- spark some spark some action into the system, I guess, to try to push things in a different way. So, you know, I think um, Ethereum has benefited for a long time from kind of being the only smart contract game in town. That is no longer the case, uh, even though they still have a, a you know, a, a fair number of kind of structural advantages and community advantages and developer advantages and things like that. But, um, but yes, yeah, so it's, it, you know, let's put it this way. For sure, there is going to be more, not less narrative battle around smart contracts over the coming year. You know, there's just no way around that.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, you alluded to your take on Bitcoin's Twitter community versus Ethereum and others. I'm definitely interested to hear your your take on that because it's always seemed adversarial to me, at least.
1: Yeah, I I mean, I think it's adversarial. And the question then is why? Uh, And, you know, I am I'm someone who is uh, kind of falls into this place where I think I think it's possible to have um, multiple conversations about blockchain simultaneously. Uh, one is about blockchains as money, one is about blockchains as enabling other things like non, non-money applications or even not kind of base layer money. Um, and so for me, I, at the same time, I also, I am, uh, there's kind of nothing in the space that gets me as excited and, and I think is as truly um, disruptive as uh, a non-sovereign, non-state, unseizable Money, Right. Like that's like that's just for me is when I think from my history, my history perspective, you know, I was always studying the history of conflict and things like that. I I think that it's a, a transformative force potentially in human history um, unlike almost anything we've seen in the modern era, unlike a a whole lot of technology. So, you know, that's, that's why I'm so interested in, in Bitcoin specifically. Um, however, I think that there's a huge number of, of interesting things that I'm really excited to see how play out. Right. I'm really interested in, uh, in, in new ways of human organization and DAOs and what, how, what that might enable on similar, but different vectors, right. Of how people organize in these places that have unstable monetary regimes and unstable political regimes. Right. So, Um, so all of that being said, uh, that, that's kind of me. I think that within the context of the Bitcoin community, um, there's, there's a lot of things going on, but, but one part of it is that this is a community that understands that, um, the, the, the possibility that, that they almost have to be adversarial as it relates to the power full institutions that exist, right? Like it is an unbelievable, uh, an unbelievable thing to actually really think about the implications of, of trying to create a money outside of the state system. And, um, and I, I, think that we've barely begun to see what the attacks could look like on that. And so I think for that community, they're, they're kind of a little bit more, um, they're, 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 they're attuned to, that they're they're taking that defensive posture from the beginning because uh because of both their interpretation of the stakes and their belief about what is uh what are likely to be the challenges now as it relates to other communities i think where 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 i find at least the the maximalists that i tend to really respect and like i found that i i think that there's a um you know there's an understanding that there's a limited number of resources uh that can go into uh this space at any given time. And it is a competition for developer talent, for, you know, uh for just kind of entrepreneurial talent for projects. And part of why they're so aggressive about um uh about other projects is they don't want this sort of giant sucking vacuum into other places, right? Um and I think that, you know, a part of part of the last two or three years of crypto was really defined by the incentives for kind of starting your own token and, and the seniors you can get from that. Um, so it kind of, it, I think that it, it did nothing but validate that stance uh, for, for them. So, you know, I think that uh, it's a particular type of attitude. I think it comes from a, a particular sense of the stakes. Uh, it comes from a feeling that um, while things can coexist, there will only be one money. It comes from a sense that that money application is the, 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 the real game and that everything else it's a distraction and it comes from trying to kind of lure uh talent to it so you know i think that uh, to me it i guess it just it feels rational in a way even if it's uh if it's not always something i you know I, i'm still interested in a lot of these other use cases as well and um and i'm kind of a you know a, a support for that and i guess this is you know getting nothing into like actual outright scams and, and that whole thing which is you know well-trodden territory that i don't necessarily need to get into as well but i think it's a big piece of that for for folks as well.
0: That's fascinating, Nathaniel. And I just devil's advocate question for you. And I mean, this applies to Bitcoin, this applies to Ethereum, this applies to basically every platform. But when, when do you feel that kind of like a narrative lock-in takes place? Like, my example here is, I, I know Blockstack is kind of pinning a lot of their state and applications on the Bitcoin network. And I've always wondered why not Ethereum. And my thought process was, obviously, they're, they're fans of Bitcoin, but they just go back so long. They've been around so long. You know, when do you feel that like a narrative lock in takes place where developers kind of are stuck on a platform when in reality they could maybe jump to another one? And this is not picking on any specific platform, just wondering, you know, where these developers get pigeonholed in a way? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And so what I think it comes down to is that, um, it's
1: another important part about narratives. Narratives are absolutely attempts at self-fulfilling prophecy, right? When you're conscious that you are sharing a particular narrative, part of your motivation, in fact, maybe your whole motivation, is to make that narrative real, even if it's a little less real than you say it is now, right? And I mean, like, you look no farther than Mr. Pompliano's Twitter for this, right? Like, he is engaged every day in an absolute war about self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like get off zero, Uh, like all of these things that all of the slogans, they are about, um, bringing people into a belief system, giving them a a kind of like inclusive way to, to identify. And, uh, and I think, like I said, that recognizing that doesn't legitimate them at all. In fact, it gives them kind of uh, more power in their own way. You understand what the stakes are, what, what you're going after. Um, so I think that the as it relates to your question, though, specifically, there's this really interesting rational economic calculus for, for anyone uh, involved with one of these communities where, you know, uh, do you double down or do you jump ship, right? Like, how much do you have the ability to drive things in the direction that you feel is best or that you feel is uh, essential uh, and versus like you just throw your hands up and move to something else. And I think that it's, it's going to be fascinating to me. That is going to be one of the most interesting questions around Ethereum, particularly if, and this is a big if, this is not uh, me kind of uh, thinking that this is going to happen or, or wishing that community anyway will. if it continues to kind of the, the, the goal's the, the post gets reset over and over for ethereum 2.0 or any of these kind of like long-standing uh, projects will people get fed up and start to go elsewhere um and uh you know or will they continue to kind of double down and, and try to contribute to the value of that community and i think people are going to answer that really differently and it's going to be based a lot on what their individual incentives are and um you know, but but I think that that's one of the most interesting things to watch is is uh, is at what point it makes sense for people to kind of um, double down on things or or keep them. And I mean, it's it's uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting to see. I think every every no crypto project that reaches any sort of um, critical mass of community is going to be exempt from that uh, particular type of of question and challenge.
0: That makes that makes sense, Nathaniel. It's interesting. And my question for you following up on that is what parties are the first to leave when a narrative goes south? Is it retail investors? Is it developers? Is it the hedge fund managers? The analysts who leaves first, who leaves last? Well,
1: it should be the, like, I I think the, the people, I mean, it should be kind of like last in first out in some ways, right. In terms of how deeply involved you are in terms of the depth of your financial commitment, in terms of how, you know, ethos agnostic versus like, I mean, there's a ton of investors who are just here to make money and that's fine, you know, but I would expect them to have the least, um, the least kind of durability, uh, to the extent that they lose faith in a, in a space, you know? So I certainly think that investors like almost definitionally, they kind of, their job is not to support one project or another, their job is to be stewards, uh, for other people's capital. You know, if you're, at least if you're managing other people's money. So I would expect them to be the least, um, the, the, the least kind of, uh, the most agnostic about the winner. They want to pick the winners. Right. And, and I think you saw that play out with like, you know, a lot of, uh, the, the funds that performed well last year, um, you know, even, even ones that were kind of broadly supportive of, uh of ethereum tended to be the ones that shorted ethereum you know or 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 things like that so so i think that you know it's just the job of the investor right based on who they are um i think developers have a much uh stronger stake in things especially now because so much is just being built and so much is being contributed and really like these networks do require um a lot of contribution that is not Directly, clearly, uh, financially incentivized as just the free markets we have. Like these are, these are ultimately open source projects that there's limits to how much value you can capture, uh, at least by contributing to the core. And so they really do require a lot of belief. Um, and it's incredibly important. Like I, you know, there's a, a deeper conversation about incentives where I think that sometimes we don't fully appreciate non-financial incentives and how motivating they can be for people. We make that mistake a lot. Um, just you not. Know, not just in crypto just in, in society as well however ultimately like you know the you do need a combination of of financial and non-financial incentives but i think developers have a lot more durability right like i think that uh you know the the they're they're likely to be the ones who are kind of most committed and by by the same token fuck i hate it when i use that phrase when i'm talking about crypto um You know, but by the same token, they are also the ones who I think that when they lose faith, the ramifications are the biggest because they fork off and do their own thing. You know what I mean? Um, it's a it, it's kind of a like when a when an investor leaves, it's like whatever. That's your job. You're going to do that. You're supposed to do that. Um, when a developer leaves and builds something different, the the stakes can be a lot higher, and it can actually be much more fracturing. They drag part of the community with them. I think the interesting battle, really, what we're talking about when we talk about the the battle for smart contract platforms and just the space in general, is the app developer layer, kind of not the not the core developer layer, and where people who are building projects on top of these protocols are going to take their their attention. Um, that's, I think, going to be the interesting conversation over the next year, two or three or five or whatever.
0: I love that you brought up non-financial incentives. I think that's awesome. And I think that our presence on Twitter and in the media and, and our followings plays into that a lot. So a question there, I mean, let's take a Bitcoin bull. Let's, let's take Jimmy Song, for example. Like, what What are the implications for Jimmy, do you think, if he came out tomorrow and said, you know, if Bitcoin's a global immutable digital gold, that's fine. That's great. But you know what? I do like what Ethereum's doing. And I like that they're, you know, an application platform. So let's, let's test it out. Let's build on it. Like, do you think that would fracture his community and his voice? Or do you think that would give him more credibility? Like, how do you weigh the financial or non-financial incentives um, in a scenario like that? Well, surely everyone is different.
1: And I mean, the the easy answer is that you're going to have some people who hate you for it and and a whole new audience of people who, who don't, you know, and I think that a lot of this is about what... You know what different communities expect out of uh, out of people who are prominent in them. Um, What what does the belief system, what does the narrative system suggest about that type of action, Uh, and and how how forgiving, how permissive is it? Like these are all really interesting um, questions that are going to be different community by community, right? Like I think Bitcoin is a is a less, uh, less interested in, um, <laughs> in that sort of shift, let's say, than, than some of these other communities. But frankly, like, I don't think that if, uh, if some prominent Ethereum folks came out tomorrow and were like, you know what, screw it. Like, um, Tom's instincts were right. Polka dots competitive. And I'm going to go over there and help it beat Ethereum. I don't think that people would be super into that either. Um, uh, however, there's the, the flip side of this is that there's a, a certain level of, I think one thing that's consistent is people want consistency. They don't like people in, in no domain do people like flip-floppers. And I think that the line between being able to evolve your perspective, um, and, and change your mind and kind of just like running from thing to thing can be pretty, pretty small. Um, and that's a, that's a real challenge. I think, especially in these, these kind of, uh, you know, what, what are still effectively
0: a, a little bit of tribal battles. That makes a lot of sense. So Nathaniel, over your time following crypto, how has the narrative for Bitcoin changed? I mean, not just in what we've seen in the media, but like from the developers, from Twitter, from what you're feeling, like how's it changed over the past five years? I mean, I,
1: I don't know about that. I think that the biggest, the biggest macro shift and now, it's important to caveat this that there are a lot of folks who believe that this is not a shift. The narrative is always just there. So, I, I want to clarify, make sure that I'm, I'm speaking in terms of um, uh, maybe out looking in. I think that holding as a use case and the importance of uh, building that 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 network of, of a store of value has definitely over the course of you know the last X number of years. Um, shifted right like the Bitcoin when it first made it into the news uh it was as a payments channel because that's what people think about when they think about online money And they were using the analogies that they had which is venmo and payPal and things like that right and so they tried to put it in that box now at the same time you know 2013 2014 you had square um, helping merchants accept Bitcoin payments and things like that and it kind of fizzled out a little bit it just wasn't wasn't really in demand and so uh so but I think that that's kind of over the last couple of years that's been the one of the, the the biggest shifts is, is this real appreciation for um, holding as a use case. In fact, at middle of last year, um, Nival uh, tried to bring up a conversation about developer incentives. Speaking of. Incentives. Um, and basically, he was kind of arguing that uh, if Bitcoin had, basically, Bitcoin could benefit from certain types of developer incentives so that people didn't go off and start their own projects so they could, you know, get seniorage from their uh, custom tokens or whatever. Um, and he unfortunately used the word free rider to describe uh, holders and as compared to developers and holders. And uh, it set off this. Very aggressive reaction. And I think part of it was just a particular term that was used, which was meant to be used economically, but kind of came off in the wrong way, I think. Um, But also, it gave people a chance to really uh, dig in and discuss how important holders were to the network. And so I would say that felt to me over the course of last year as as a narrative that really emerged into its own in the context of Bitcoin. It became accepted more. Now, uh, like, uh, it's, it's... a lot of folks have suggested and shown how that was always an essential part of the narrative. That it wasn't just cash. That it wasn't just a, a transaction system. Um, that the the decision to emphasize one narrative or another had to do at certain times with with the. Uh, the the kind of the the larger macro you know tech climate or economic climate or whatever. So I'm not I'm not claiming having not been there that that the store of value kind of proposition was not um, an essential piece of Bitcoin from the beginning. However, it did feel like over the course of last year it, it really became much more
0: accepted and consolidated around. Um, so that's I, that's something that I found really interesting. That makes a lot of sense. So I guess moving on, Nathaniel, what are the stakes for the rest of the world? Um, you know, for crypto narratives, like whether or not they get involved, whether they do, you know, how do you feel as though we'll attract them? I guess just what's your take on what the stakes are for the rest of the world outside of crypto itself? Sure. I mean, so
1: we have, um, there's there's a set of different narrative battles going on simultaneously. One, like I said, is the battle for what the point of crypto is at all. And this is a big one, right? Is, Is it about uh, is it about a sound global money that can't be debased? Is it about, um, uh, you know, distributed computing power that allows people to build applications that, you know, won't have you deplatformed and censored? Is it about, you know, w- whatever, right? And even in those that context, if it's about all those things, how do they rank? What's the importance? Um, you know, th- that's, I think, a really important piece of of this uh of the narrative in the conversation and i part of part of the thing that makes that so interesting is um you know watching i mean obviously venezuela is the scenario that everyone likes to talk about uh right now in crypto and how kind of bitcoin is being used as uh as a different um as a as a a store of value potentially or just watching that And, and i think it almost to me. So I think that there's, there's narrative implications and then there's real implications. The narrative implication is really important because it's a, it's a place to show that there seems to be at least some evidence that, um, that we're at the beginning of an era, at least without, without trying to overemphasize how big a role Bitcoin has in something like the Venezuelan economy. I think that we could at least agree that we now live in an era where there is, There is the opportunity for people to opt out, at least partially, from their state monetary system and have this alternative that exists on the internet. Now, we can debate how ready for that reality Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency is. We can talk a lot, and I think should, about uh, the risk of kind of... um, turning these places into, uh, you know, humanitarian aid relief through crypto rather than just, you know, uh, economic outlets and opportunity. So there's, there's all these important conversations. However, it, it to me is pretty undeniable that we now live in a world where Bitcoin exists as an alternative for some, I mean, you still have to be context savvy. You still have to be digitally connected, but it exists as an alternative to, um, to state money. And that's really powerful. And that's really different. And that's, 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 you know, has narrative implications but it's also kind of real world stuff so so this is the stakes when we're looking at the outside world is like does does the world look at uh at at bitcoin and think you know still kind of silk road hangover stuff uh and bad guys and things like that or do they think you know um uh folks being able to move from you know, Venezuela to Argentina and use Bitcoin to survive. Right. And that's a pretty, that's a pretty powerful narrative shift. So I think there's those stakes, but, but I think that that's kind of, if you, if you have that on the macro, then within crypto, you have this, I I think the interesting thing is that to me, there's these like phases, right? Right now we are still competing for the early adopter community. Right. And we're still figuring out in in some ways we're kind of purging the part of the market that came in for strictly like get rich fast, uh, goals last year, right. Or two years ago. And, um, that is, uh, that's, that's the place that we are now, but within that context, we have, you know, X number of people, who are really interested in the space, the set of early adopters who are interested. And, and so part of the reason that the, the battle for community affiliation is really strong is that, you know, if, if the, the market of available interest is limited to, you know, the, the, however many people are, are paying attention on Twitter and kind of getting involved and trying to be around, like, are, do they care about Bitcoin? Do they care about Ethereum? Do they care about, you know, what do they care about? So, so you we're still, I think competing for, um, for the early adopter community. From there, we're going to be competing for kind of like, what are the use cases that can reach escape velocity and how people know. And so, you know, I think that, uh, it'll be really interesting to see, you know, one of the big conversations obviously is institutional involvement in this space. Um, and, uh, and you know, it's, it's this sort of slow burn right now where things are happening, things are percolating. There has not been a, Slow down in the continued learning um, from big kind of financial institutions about Bitcoin and about crypto. Uh, it's just gotten, you know, they've had the chance to kind of cal- The market is calibrated with the way those types of institutions learn anyways, which is slow, ponderously and over time. Um, and to kind of the, the projects in those spaces, you know, an extremely frustratingly slow rate often. Um, but it, it is, uh, it'll be really interesting to see how infrastructure changes, um, kind of, uh, create or enable new narratives too, right? Like, so one of the things that is, um, Right now, when it comes to those institutional uh, investors and and kind of the the larger financial world, we get to rely a little bit from a narrative perspective on a lack of some of the key infrastructure being built, right? Like not having good qualified custodians and all this sort of stuff. uh, as a, as a reason that things, you know, they kind of haven't jumped in now, should fidelity come and start custodying things? And no one's actually interested in, interested in these assets. Like boy, will that require a narrative shift? And, uh, you know, it, it'll just be a little bit different. So I don't know, it's going to be really interesting. Basically the, there's this kind of cool, um, or at least interesting relationship between, uh, between, Reality and narrative that can create these feedback loops where, you know, narrative takes hold, evidence suggests otherwise, narrative adapts does a little bit of historical revisionism, and then we move on to the next thing. Um, and I think that's just kind of a, there's, there's a really important narrative cycle that happens. So I, and I, think, I think 2019 is going to be a lot about that as it relates to kind of um, on the one end of the spectrum institutions and on the other end of the spectrum, the, uh, the real kind of uh, human use case of particularly Bitcoin and, um, in, in less than ideal scenarios.
0: That's great. And yeah, your your idea on the continued learning definitely resonates with me. One of my mentors, uh, Tim McDonald, it's T R McDonald on Twitter, he always told me uh, when I was debating starting a crypto research biz, you know, that the first day you get started, you're a day ahead of everybody else, not a week ahead of everybody else, just to get started. But, you know, back to your point on Venezuela, um, you know, Bitcoin's always been, thwarted, you know, reported as a, you know, global sound money. And that always made sense to me. But I always thought that we have such large geographical differences. Like, you know, if I'm sitting in my in house in America, you know, kind of building the next gen of applications is really, you know, interesting to me. But if I'm in Venezuela, I really want to protect my wealth. You know, do you see that the narratives are different, you know, per geography? It just doesn't seem like something that'll ever be connected on a global scale. I feel like we're always going to have these differences.
1: So first, absolutely. There's, uh, there's no denying that these, um, these uh the, the the experience of what bitcoin and crypto assets mean is going to vary wildly based on where you are um i mean there's just there's there's no denying that now i think that part of this big communication infrastructure that we have uh you know in twitter allows us to break out of kind of the 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 natural bubble that we exist in and understand um, understand that. And, and that is, you know, if you look historically at, okay, actually, let me, let me go back into history for, for a minute. Um, cause I think this is, is actually really relevant and, and is something that's very special and good and positive about now. But if you look historically, the only way that people have understood, uh, difference is by having that difference reframed in, in, in the context of their own experience and, and connected the dots. So, um, so before I moved to San Francisco, I almost, uh, went to, um, to the UK to do a PhD in history. And I was going to study the history of the British abolitionist movement. The British, British abolitionist movement was the first time in human history that a massive group of people organized for, uh, for someone other than them other than themselves and, um, for a group that they didn't belong to basically. And, uh, and, and it was really interesting because that movement, uh, it, it basically, it started with the Quakers and for 20 years, the Quakers from a kind of religious and moral perspective were beating down the door of British society saying you, you know, this is immoral and you can't do this and it's horrible. Um, and then it took the involvement of kind of, uh, of a different class. Um, so there were some key figures who, who got involved. And then once that group got involved, kind of the, the landed political class, or uh, at least two two kind of very, um, the, the two most prominent figures in that were one guy who was well-known and has had lots of movies made about him named Wilbur Wilberforce, who was a, an MP and another person who was arguably more important, who's less known named Thomas Clarkson. Um, Thomas Clarkson was the guy who's read about, or who kind of rode like a half million miles going between different town meetings and connecting, um, Basically, he connected the plight of, uh, of slaves with the emerging plight of the, um, of the emerging industrial class. Uh, and he, and he connected the dots between, he basically made the argument that this is a spectrum of human debasement that goes, you know, from, uh, from you to, um, you know, you in these factory conditions to these slave ship conditions. And it's, and it's actually, um, you know, how many steps away are we? And so Britain became the first, the first kind of, a, of the major, uh, <clears throat> the major nations, uh, in Europe to, to ban the slave trade. And then, um, and then obviously in America that actually kind of continuing the story and moving it forward. Um, there was a, a, one of the things that really helped the American abolitionist movement take root is when former slaves started writing, um, publications in their own words. And so they were putting things into a language, into stories that people could understand as part of their own experience, not as something separate. And so fast forward, this is obviously, this is the very origins of how people started to, uh, to relate to one another in groups of difference. Um, You can see this pattern play out across the history of kind of humanitarian aid and people getting involved. but what we have now, and it's obviously still on a, on a, on a less dramatic level a little bit, um, but, you know, we get the ability to listen to people who are framing their experience uh, in a language, a literal language that we understand and actually explain it. And so an amazing example of this is um, Eduardo Gomez, who uh, who was he's Venezuelan. He left. Uh, he he basically used Bitcoin to survive. Um, he uh, he worked for a, a Bitcoin company or he works for a Bitcoin company. And um, and from there, he uh, he was able to kind of get himself and his family to Argentina um, and has been, uh, you know, a really important voice. Uh, as, uh, as Crypto has learned about um, the situation in Venezuela because he can contextualize it. He is both of the uh, Venezuelan community Um, and passionately so and he is also of the crypto community and speaks bitcoin and understands it and so he becomes a bridge for for us all to understand and then he's elevated uh he was on um off the chain with 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 palm and that brings him to a whole new audience so you know i think that it's really important to understand that there is uh you know a pretty significant difference in the experience that different people have while at the same time um recognizing that there's never been literally ever a better time to actually understand other people's experience than there is right now so i I don't know i'm i'm kind of uh i'm pretty optimistic about our ability as a crypto community to be able to keep these multiple different contexts in mind all all at once
0: that's an awesome journey and a great mental frame of reference that we now have i appreciate that nathaniel you know, just moving on to a little bit of a different topic while I have sure. you. Um, when do you think that? I watch a lot of movies, you know, Prophets Pray, Spotlight, those are all kind of religious, culty kind of mus- uh, movies. Uh, Spotlight's another one. You know, when do you feel as though, or how do you even realize if you're in a crypto or a project that's com- becoming like a cult? Like, how do you realize that, and how do you potentially get out? <laughs> um, I know it's a hard question. I'm just wondering, I mean, I think at some point some of these projects are going to turn into like religious cult followings if they're not already.
1: Yeah,
0: I'm I don't know, man. I think So here's
1: the thing. I think the thing that's hard is that um, most people who find themselves in that, well, I don't know. I, I don't know if I'll go that far. I, a fair number of the people who would find themselves in that situation in the kind of cultiest part of a community were probably looking for that. And so it's extra hard to get themselves out of it um but i so here's something that i thought was really interesting uh Niraj from coin center uh tweeted today he said a thought from someone reflecting on the quality of crypto twitter and it's a it's like a, a shot of a message from some app or something i don't know whatsapp or something like that and the message that he shared was giving people a financial incentive to self organize into tribes is turning out to be way more interesting than i would have imagined um so again i think going back to this idea of uh narratives as self-fulfilling prophecy is um you know people have a really strong incentive to uh, to push their community right now right to to compete for the available attention and resources within this sort of early adopter crypto community so to some extent you know like it's it's hard sometimes to know how uh how much the um cult-like behavior is uh is real versus strategic you know um but I, I don't know, I think that like, for me, certainly the, the best way to escape that is, uh, look, I, I, I'm a big believer in following, um, and this is crypto particularly, but anywhere that you can do it, like following the smartest people that you disagree with, uh, I feel like creates a very healthy, um, uh, health, healthy way to not be trapped into sort of the, the uh, cultism of, of some of these communities.
0: That makes sense. So a lot of this narrative talk plays really well into governance where stakeholders on a network, developer, token holders, miners, those running nodes have to make real decisions. And on Bitcoin, there's a lot of signaling and you know, a lot of following of thought leaders, which, which is fine, in my opinion, if they're, if they're right. But in other networks, it's kind of becoming easier to do in a way um, Like on Decred, you could vote with your tokens and you could see the results in real time. So you don't have to guess which is most popular. Everybody has like an easier way to vote. So I guess there's two things to unpack here. I mean, as governance becomes more of an issue and changes these networks happen, do you think narrative takes center stage there? Or do you think it's more much of the same that we've seen? I think it's a combination. So I think narrative and governance uh,
1: do have an important role together. And I think actually, interestingly, Bitcoin is is. Uh, is is strong evidence of this to me. So there is a narrative of governance of Bitcoin uh, that it is um, governance is basically a, a, you know, an attack vector and so it's kind of that that surface area should be minimized as much as possible um i think that is widely believed and actually is one of the things that belief about governance and maybe that is is uh is kind of partially a hangover from from um political beliefs outside of crypto as well but whatever the case that is a a a belief about governance that actually attracts people to the project and, and it makes them willing to participate right like for them the the messy inefficiency of uh of of certain types of decisions is a good thing because the, the, the default position, uh, when, when the, when the goal is the overarching goal is to not mess up, to not go down, to not screw up has to be conservatism, right. Uh, in terms of kind of changes and and things like that. So, you know, I I think that there's certainly narratives have an important role in governance in terms of, um, people self-selecting kind of the, the, the broadly speaking, the approach to governance that, that makes sense to them. Um, I think that you're likely to see more. This year is likely to see a lot more governance narratives competing for people's devotion. Right? Like, again, now that a lot of these uh, protocols are live and actually doing real things, all of a sudden there's something to to have governance about, and so they potentially compete in a in a kind of an intellectual market for um, for for governance where people affiliate on the basis of what uh, what systems make sense to them. Now, in that context, though, obviously, like. Uh, ability to understand governance is a major uh, is a major challenge or or rather like to understand what the difference between decred versus definities governance is versus you know whatever right to 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 really understand that and then there's obviously you know I I, so so I guess that like I'm 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 pretty convinced that governance narratives are going to matter or at least people are going to try to compete on the basis of them Um, I think there's a lot of other challenges though as well when it comes to um i guess two things that stand out to me are are one for 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 let's say that a project has been able to really explain its governance well and people get it and they're bought into it um two two things stand out one is uh the actual infrastructure for governance and how easy it is to participate is a major barrier so even if you have like you know uh, very optimistically 75 or 80% of your community, like opted in at least in part because they understood and, and got your governance. Um, how like how do they actually vote? Is it easy? Is it hard? What do they do? What do they need to do to participate? Like those are real, real questions and challenges, I think. So there, there's a, a very practical kind of user experience level to governance as well, where even if a narrative takes hold, it still matters. Um and then a and a third piece is around incentives to vote and participate. And I think this is going to be kind of um I wouldn't be surprised if this actually uh is, is even more important in some ways than than governance narratives, which is um you know do based on the governance models that people have do they feel like they have enough of a of an ability to influence things and and make a difference that they actually participate or do we have a situation where um you know low voter turnout like reinforces and re uh the kind of the downside of plutocracy which is that Basically, if you have a you know a holdings based voting system, and the people who have the greatest holdings have the most to, to gain or lose on the basis of any particular decision, uh, and then they're the the only ones to kind of participate in the voting, it, it becomes this very kind of um, it's a it's a positive feedback loop with a negative outcome where highest stakes in the decision kind of. Uh, drives decisions towards those areas which leads people to disengage further and yada 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 so i wouldn't be surprised if we see more experimentation not just around the narratives um, for for governance but for the incentives right like it wouldn't surprise me at all if someone comes out with a protocol and is like nope go, like voting is mandatory you're going to have your stake slashed and things like that so i don't know i think it's going to be really interesting though um and uh you know these are all they're all attempts at coordination systems um, at a scale that we kind of haven't, haven't seen for a while. So it's going to be pretty cool to see.
0: Yeah, the governance debates are really interesting and following along with the projects, implementing them are even more so interesting. And, you know, my, my take is just that it's going to be really hard to implement governance systems once cryptos get larger. And we I mean, were seeing 0x do this. I think they're having a token vote soon, but they never really had governance in their system. And that was a huge pushback. But Just moving on, Nathaniel, I mean, recent news out, we got to discuss it. Pomp and Jason Williams and Mark Gesco have their $40 million fund backed by two pensions, which I thought was a huge signal to the space what's your take on this?
1: Yeah. So I, I actually completely agree that this is a big deal. I, I actually did a, um, I did a stream about it on Periscope this morning, uh, for, uh, cause I, I think that I, I want to make sure that people had the significance of it. So, so the, there's a couple things. One is, um, just from a, like, Hey, this is a bear market that people are still able to raise a $40 million venture fund. And that's good news, right? Uh, it means that interest hasn't completely left. Um, which is awesome, but that's kind of like baseline awesome. The much more interesting thing has to do with the fact that, uh, that it was anchored by a couple of pension funds. And, um, and so kind of what I was, was riffing on, on, on Periscope was that if you look at the, um, the LP base, the limited partner base for venture funds, they have a few different components and kind of on, on one end of the risk spectrum, the, 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 maybe the, the most, um, risk tolerant, you have things like family offices where they're exactly as risky as the high net worth families and individuals that they represent. And so, you know, not all of them are, are, uh, are, are particularly kind of, um, risk tolerant, but, but some of them are right. Especially if, uh, if, if someone has a particular interest in a, in a new space or an emerging space like, uh, like crypto. So, so, you know, a, a lot of the kind of institutional engagement around crypto has been driven by family office, um, by family offices and family office folks who who really kind of stepped up and helped other family offices learn about it. Um, David Nage, who's now at ARCA, uh, was kind of running family office stuff before and did a ton of work to, to get family offices comfortable with um, crypto over the last couple of years. So you have that uh, part of the institutional investor spectrum. Now, then kind of somewhere in the middle, maybe from a risk perspective, you have... Um, Endowments, university endowments are a huge, huge area of kind of uh, venture capital LPs historically. And so last year there was a lot of excitement when Yale, um, made an investment in a couple of different crypto funds, I think, including, um, Paradigm, which is, uh, Fred Ersham's fund, the guy who, um, was, uh, previously a co-founder at Coinbase. Um, that was, that was exciting to folks for, for the reason both that, um, an endowment was, was getting involved, but also because David Swenson, who runs Yale's endowment is particularly influential in that space. Um, there's a university endowments watch, what um, in particular the kind of the top biggest endowments are doing very closely, uh, so so that was a big deal from a signaling perspective. Then um, pensions are kind of farthest on the the risk adversity spectrum uh, in most cases, and that's good reason for that, right? Like these are they're they're dealing with people's livelihoods, uh, not kind of just you know broad capital markets and, and people trying to make money. It's, it's folks who just need, um, to have kind of their, their wealth preserved and, and, uh, and increase so they can, can live out their lives. So it's natural that that's a group that's going to be much less, um, risk tolerant than, than other groups. And so the, the interesting thing is that, uh, any, you know, my, my strong instinct is that there are lots of folks who are looking at, Um, even in that at that pension space uh, across the institutional investor landscape, but even in the pension space who are looking across crypto and saying, um, you know, this is a really interesting hedge against uh, a lot of what's going on in the larger markets. And it's a non-correlated asset. And in fact, there's reasons to think that um, it does kind of, you know, it performs in in certain types of, you know, economic uh, turbulence that, that we might experience. And, you know, I think a hedge there could be could be really interesting. Now, the question is um, their incentives and how far they can push that those individuals can push their, you know, whatever bodies they invest with. And I think that one of the things that's really important is, to, again, coming back to incentives, to remember individual incentives, right? Like there are cool incentives to be the first, you know, in, a, in an industry to really get something right. Like you can make your career on a, on a bet that does well. Um, however, there's far more in the way of disincentives to leave the, from, you know, leave from kind of the, the herd and the conventional wisdom uh, should things go poorly. Right. Like there's there's not going to be probably a lot of people who get totally fired uh, for not investing in crypto last year. Right. There's going to be maybe I mean, hopefully like uh, a few people who don't who get fired in the future for not having invested in crypto this year. But, you know, I think a lot of us who are excited think that in three to five years, if you're not in yet. Uh, that's, that's actually going to be a mistake. And so the question is where, where in the spectrum are we? Um, and, and part of what matters about pensions kind of coming out publicly as, as LPs in, in a fund like this is that it creates more cloud cover for, for those, those individuals who are already interested in crypto to say, Hey, you know, look, this is starting to be a thing. Um, and I think we should make a small allocation. So I, I think that the news is much more significant than just uh, than just Morgan Creek, although it's very exciting for them. Um, and I'm super stoked for those guys. I think it's it's much more about um, creating more space for more uh, institutional investors across kind of all all, all of those different categories to uh, to say, hey, let's let's actually do this thing.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And one of my last questions for you, Nathaniel, is. On that vibe of pension funds, I mean, pension funds, man, 25 billion, something crazy number like that. I'm thinking off the top of my head from a tweet I saw earlier. You know, how do we attract like when you were in those conversations, with those pension funds, are they going to care about Bitcoin's block reward and transaction fees? Or are they more interested in uncorrelated asset, hedge, risk averse, diversify? Caveat
1: is that I don't know, having not sat in those meetings, but I can I can give you my guess, which is that the best care about both in, um, the reverse order of what you just said, which is that this needs to clear muster from the framework of what makes sense to them and what their needs are, right? Like, uh, this is an uncorrelated asset. They're interested in the hedge against, you know, a dollar losing its status as a reserve currency, like whatever it is, whatever their investment thesis that this might fit into has to be paramount to some extent, because, you know, that's, that's what, what they're, 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 they're basing their investments off of those narratives that they've got, that they understand based on their experience in the market. Uh, so, so it kind of, it has to match that narrative to some extent. Otherwise it's just, you know, why, why would you invest in it? Which is why I think a lot of, um, uh, you know, you see a lot of investors talking about what, Bitcoin and what other assets mean relative to the larger market context. Um, So that's that's part one. I think that the best investors are going to care about those. Uh, those other issues, the kind of things that are, that, that feel more micro that feel within the, within the ecosystem of a particular asset, because those have to do with, I mean, the equivalent, uh, of those, those questions in Bitcoin is the equivalent of looking at if you're going to make a big investment in a, a, currency in a country, what's likely to happen politically in that country, right? Um, these are things that, that have, um, that, that impact your belief about the durability of the asset, the long-term future of the asset, um, Now, of course, with investors, it's possible, like er everything is about timeframe, right? So it's possible to have someone who's, you know, very skeptical long term, but thinks that for the short term, you know, uh, Bitcoin is going to be the, the kind of center of the, the crypto markets, and um, they're likely to grow as as global kind of instability grows. So, you know, I, I, th- I think that I think that good investors want to know everything, um, and I think that the, to, to to pass pass through the first layer of like, is this something that I should spend my limited time on? It has to match with a an, a narrative that they have about uh, where the markets are headed. But from there, they're you know. Best investors go deep.
0: That makes that's interesting. And Nathaniel, where can people follow you before we close out and definitely tell people who aren't aware about Long Read Sunday?
1: Yeah, so I am uh my kind of the the main presence for me everywhere is at NLW um, on Twitter. Uh and that links out to my website and and everything else. But um but yeah I I, so I every Sunday I curate kind of the, the best long form Twitter threads, um, in particular in some essays into what is called, or was come to be called long read Sunday. Uh, it goes out, uh, you know, without fail, I haven't missed a week yet. And I think this will be 30 week 34 coming up. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's hopefully it's a good way for, for people to catch up on, um, not just the news layer, but really that, that kind of interpretation layer. And, and the, the prompting for it was really just seeing such a huge percentage of, of insightful things that I was reading about and learning were coming in the form of, um, you know, Twitter and Twitter threads and, uh, and and the thing that's great about them is that they, um, they get right to their audience. They don't have to click out for anything else. And they allow, I think people to, uh, be a little bit more off the cuff and less well refined, which means you get kind of a, a higher portion of, of ideas, even if they're not fully developed out, but they go away really fast. Um, they don't get kind of cataloged or, or kept anywhere. And so I started it to, uh, to, to keep track of those really interesting pieces of information and threads that, that otherwise might get lost. And it's, um, it's, going strong you know 30 34 weeks later so um hope to see you on twitter on sunday mornings
0: nathaniel has been an awesome podcast on positioning storytelling narratives i really appreciate your time and i can't wait to share this one awesome man thanks so much for having me hey everyone thanks for listening to the podcast please rate review and share the podcast help other people find it